Welcome to The Mentor List. To turn you into the best version of you that's around. To seek support and you need to allow yourself to be supported. Really have a point of difference. What is precious, what's really important and then putting some boundaries there. The Mentor List specialises in interviews with top business minds. Gather their advice for your career. This is The Mentor List. Welcome to our CEO podcast series. Today's theme, the power of effective decision making. Today we have Mike Foster joining us, who is the outgoing CEO of Fujitsu Australia. One of the insights that Mike mentions in this is this idea that the most dangerous thing you can say in business is, let me think about it, or even maybe. The issue with this is it prevents direct feedback and immediately puts indecision into your business. As leaders, we have got to learn to say no. And this is the advice from Mike. So we hope you enjoy today's CEO podcast series conversation with Mike Foster. Okay, Mike Foster, welcome to The Mentor List. Thanks, Dave. Well, very happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. And I'm looking at your backdrop there. and It looks like blue skies where you are. Yes, actually, that's over Middle Harbour in Sydney. Fantastic. Yeah, so looking forward to asking you a couple of questions today in our current uh, CEO leadership series. So the first question is around career, and it's, you know, how did you progress into the role of CEO at Fujitsu? Right, okay. Well, I mean, maybe to go back uh, one more step. So I, uh, you know, after coming out of uni and I took a job as a graduate in the IT industry because no one knew what IT was, least of all me. And uh, back in those days, which is now the early 80s, you know, I got told, pick an industry that's growing. So I picked the oil industry and I went and a friend of mine's, Dad was in the oil industry and he goes, oil's finished, mate, that's the 1970s. Go into this new thing called computers. So anyway, went in and, and did that. But, but the point about it was I got to about five years in and, and I was involved mainly in selling. And I was quite successful and did really well. But I got to about 30 and I went, is this it? What else could I do? So what I did was um, I sort of sat back and, and looking back, it's going to sound quite orderly and quite planned, but in reality it's not like that. But just to get the hindsight, I got to a point where I went, well, I can keep doing what I'm doing now and probably be quite successful at it. But I really want to run things. I want to run a business. I want to know how a business runs. So the first thing I did was I realized I needed an MBA. I needed more study because, you know, I probably wasn't strong enough on things like finance and probably the law. And the second thing was I realized that I had to start doing some different things. So I had to start managing people. I had to go live somewhere else. So I moved to the US, not quite as easy as what all this sounds, but, and you just, you know, but what I'm saying is you, you give yourself a broader platform by which to launch the next part of your career. And that's what I did. And then basically I ended up at the company I was at, at the time, I ended up being the managing director there. I was quite young. I was probably about 33 or 34. And I uh, got put into it probably a little bit like the way the politics run in a multinational corporation, like the politics run in politics. I think I was the candidate that was the least objectionable to all the different factions. So they put me in and, and quite frankly, a lot of it was quite regimented. You, you know, you were doing things that were quite statutory in nature, not really running the business per se, because it was an American multinational. And then got headhunted into running a, it's now a very established company, but a company called EMC running Australia and New Zealand. So I went from a company of running, you know, 2,000 people to running 40. And it was a startup. I mean, this is now early 90s. And the first thing I had to do when I walked into the office was move the blue Sulo bin 
from the front door so that you could actually get in the door, which I wasn't accustomed to at all. And I remember walking in saying the first person I saw, who put the bin there? And the person said, well, if you don't like it, you move it, mate, because you do it, do it yourself around here. So I sort of went from, you know, corporate into this other, you know, quite, you know, free, engaged, flowing, win at all costs, sort of, you know, the 90s. And, and then um, out of the blue, I got headhunted into Telstra. And what happened was, it was a couple of things. One, I had a young family. Two, working at a company like EMC was what I called the McDonald's model. So everything was done for you, like sales plans, comp plans, marketing, market assessment, campaigns, products, custom, even the way you handle customers. It was all a formula. And I was sitting there thinking, I'm 36 or 37 years of age. I'm doing really well. Two things were happening. One is I was traveling way too much with a young family. And that was important that I spent more time with the family. And the second thing was, basically, I didn't have any decisions to make. And looking back, that was the thing. I didn't realize at the time, but, and I called it the McDonald's model. It's a little bit like back in those days, if you worked for McDonald's and you said, oh, look, here in Australia, we like pineapple and an egg on our, on our hamburger with the lock. So let's change the big mat and put a pineapple on it. Chicago would have told you real quick, Mike, you know, don't change the recipe. Just keep, you know, no more than three to a line and, and sell a fries and coke with every Big Mac. You get told what to do. And it's not a bad thing. It's just a different thing. And I went, no, I've got to do something where I'm more involved in the recipe. And Telstra had under me, which was completely foreign. I wasn't interested in joining them. I got a phone call, and this is the days of Ziggy Swikowski. They said uh, I didn't pick the company, and it was when they were doing the PCCW, the Hong Kong deals, which were at the time quite topical and quite famous. And the headhunter said to me, the company's Telstra, and I went, this is the Monday morning. I said, I'm not interested in meeting and joining Telstra. It's not the sort of company I want to work for because I thought they were a big established company and I was looking for more of a startup. And they said, have you ever met Ziggy? Have you met Bob Mansfield? I said, no, I haven't. I said, well, come and meet them. So I met them the next day. So it was the Tuesday. And then um, the Friday, they gave me an offer. I met the board as well. And then they gave me an offer on the Friday. And they flew to Hong Kong. And uh, long story short, Ziggy called me on the Saturday and he said, what do you think of our offer? And it wasn't what I was looking for. And I went, Ziggy, it's not. And it was nothing to do with financials. It was actually the role. You know, the, what, I was really focused on the scope of the role and would it give me what I was looking for. And he said, well, what do you want? And I said, for Ziggy, for me to join Telstra, it's got to do A, B, C, and D. And he goes, right, you've got it. Welcome to Telstra. And he hung up. And I learned a lesson then, be careful what you ask for, you might just get it. <laughs> do you remember what the ABCs were? Uh, it was to do with the scope and control and, and influence. You know, it was to do with the way we were going to approach customers was one. The way we were going to set up the sales and go to market model was a second. I can't remember the other things were, but it might have been something to do with marketing funds. Back in those days, Telstra had a lot of money and a very different organisation. And I remember standing in my study hanging onto the phone and my wife didn't even know I'd been talking to them. Like that's how quick all this was. Wow. So you're in Hong Kong? Is that, so you're in, no, is that I was in are? Sydney and she, they had flown to Hong Kong on the Friday. This is the Saturday and I'm standing in my study in Sydney just having this conversation that Ziggy had, you know, I'd said what I wanted and he said, well, you got it. See you at work. Wow. My wife goes, what happened? And I go, I think I just joined Telstra. <laughs> and looking back, it's what made me. And what happened was I got into Telstra at the time when obviously it was direct. And there was a lot of two things. One was there were some very good people at Telstra who had been there a long time. 
some people, you know, like Stuart Lee, who unfortunately just recently passed away, but people that really, really knew Roger Bamba, these sorts of guys. And then there was people like me who'd come from the outside and looking back at, you know, and to give you an idea of who, you know, people come to mind, Christine Holgate got bought in to run all the business marketing, myself to run all the business sales and, and front-end dealers. Holly Kramer came in to run marketing. David Thody came in to run the mobiles. David Moffat came in as the CFO. So there's this blend of the old Telstra and people coming in from the corporate, and it worked. So, and that was the first thing the people were, you know, know, like looking back, and they're just some of the people that were there, they were very, very good. And the second thing was they basically, I remember going to them and said, look, this is what we've got to do with our go-to-market model. And the part of the business I had was $6.5 billion of revenue, so it was a lot of money. And they said, Mike, you know, we've given you the, you know, the control to run and set it up, you know, don't make a mistake, get on with it. And looking back, that's really gave me the, you know, the imprimatur to do what I think needed to be done. I mean, I often hear this concept of the idea of uh, being headhunted and but that is, you know, being headhunted in the ultimate sense. It's not um, checking the pages and then telling your boss, oh, I'm not headhunted. <laughs> That's uh, amazing. If you ever talk to any of the others I just spoke about, you know, I'm sure um, they all had the similar thing. And it was the one recruitment company that did all of us. And in fact, the guy who was the recruit, his name's John Powell, and uh, used to mumble. He never used to know what John said. And I joined Telstra and uh, it was my, you know, first day, it was about 11 o'clock. I've been in the office a couple, you know, three hours or something. The phone rings and it's John. And his opening line was, are you still talking to me? That was his opening line. So, uh, but yeah, on the whole, and coming back to how I got to Fujitsu, it's, I won't go through it all, but part of what I did at Telstra was I got the ability to buy and sell companies. So I bought CADs for Telstra on behalf of the company. And then when Sol Trujillo came in and said he didn't want to have an IT services company, very long story, it took us three and a half years to do, but basically broke it up and I sold half of it to Link Market Services, to John McMurty and the Pep Boys, to the private equity boys. And that's been very successful. You know, Link has been. And the other half I sold to Fujitsu. And it was time for me to go back into IT after 10 years in Telco. And, and at the time, Fujitsu said, what are you going to do? And I wanted out of Telstra, just back to this 10-year sort of thing. And it was the global financial crisis. And they said, well, come and help us integrate. We don't have anyone to integrate the business, which was 2,500 people coming in Fujitsu from CAS slash Telstra. So I thought I'll do that for six months. And 11 and a half years later, I'm just finally drawing the curtain on it. Amazing. And you mentioned sort of drawing the curtain on it. So how do you sort of feel? Because that's fairly fresh news, I guess, externally. But is this something you've been working towards to, you know, yeah, yeah. over the last few years or...? Probably the last two years. So what happened was a number of things. And if I quickly go over my 10 years at Telstra, uh, Fujitsu, when I first came into Fujitsu, I went to the US for six months because they were interested in me running the US. And I didn't want it because it was too disruptive. I had kids in high school and I wanted to professionally, but personally didn't fit. And the decision I always made with my wife was family came first. So, you know, and, and you make that decision and off you go. So that's a whole different sort of you know, discussion point. But back to Fujitsu, when I first came in, it was a product company. It was doing about $600, $700 million in product per annum and a little bit of services. And they just won a major corporate customer, which was Qantas. And I had nothing to do with winning it. I was just coming at the time. But I saw the company and they beat the so-called giants of the time, you know, the other big IT outsourcers like the IBMs and the CSCs and the HPs of the day. And I saw the company, and of course, I came from Telstra, which was an 800-pound gorilla, and I'm looking at the staff in Fujitsu going, 
you're as good as these other guys. Why aren't you winning more of these things? So the first part we did was when I came in and, and once I took it over was we really set it up for new business development, changed the whole company to win new deals, changed people's reward structures, compensation, hired more you know, hunters. And two things happened, David. One was we had a really good delivery model and that worked. And this is the days of big infrastructure outsourcing deals. The second thing that happened was, and you know, I'd like to say that I'm better than I was, but if I look at it honestly, the second thing that happened, IBM, HP and CSC all went internal and they lost their way. And the Indian outsourcers hadn't really hit in this market, in the Oceania market at this point. So this is like now 2012, 13, 14. And one thing about Fujitsu, which gets back to this point, was I was the chairman and the CEO, and basically all everybody reported to me in the region. There was no dot matrix, no... So you're in the chair, and you make the decisions that you live or die by, and so do you know, 5,000 people. We started winning everything we bid on. And we won about 15 deals over the course of 2013, 14. So back, as I said, when the opposition, we found this niche that we were sufficiently multinational, but sufficiently local enough to be attractive. Our competitors got confused and started looking internally and we sailed right through the middle. And back to the point was what actually happened was we won all these deals. We had 15 transitions and each transition was between 20 and $150 million going at one time. So what happened, coming back to my McDonald's analogy, was we got indigestion. And what happened was I also realized the company needed structure, process, and everything else. But we won all these deals. So I was out getting senior project managers. So I'd go, David, can you come and do company, you know, customer X? We've got a transition. We've got to move the data center. We've got to do this. There's all sorts of penalties if we don't and everything else. And by the way, bring 20 of your mates in as well who are skilled and go and do it. So what happened was, as opposed to winning all these business and having this uniform, consistent delivery, we had 15 disparate delivery engines because we brought senior people in to run it. And in fact, looking back, it, it fractured. So that was the first thing. The second thing that happened was I've always been quite progressive around IT in terms of themes. And we were one of the first in Australia to build a private cloud. And then we were one of the first to actually implement it. And, you know, it's very interesting when you're basically looking for the instruction manual and it doesn't exist. Yeah, wow. This is like an AWS or a Azure type thing. So we had a major, major customer. They signed about a $120 million deal with us. Not all of it was cloud, but it was based on cloud. So this is 2013. Then we had an issue with, and I had the CEO of one of Australia's largest public companies ring me up and say, Mike, we're all over the place here. You know, you guys told us this cloud strategy would work. So I called my techs, all my guys in and go, what's going on? And they said, well, we're having a trouble with a certain provider. And I went, oh, okay. And I said, well, let's get them on the phone and get it sorted. So we got them on the phone, which included people from their head office, not just the local people. And then they said, oh, yeah, well, we didn't really tell you this, but you're the first in implementation. We've got this in the world. And they left that little <laughs> bit off before we actually sold it to this major. So oh, anyway, between the three of us, the customer, ourselves, and the provider, it took us about two years to get it right. But yeah, sometimes you get a little bit ahead of the curve. Yeah. It's a bit lonely. Well, I think it's sort of caught up now in sort of the regulatory tape. You need to sort of push stuff out into the it's cloud very, now. Yeah. Different yeah, challenges. I, think, I think data, you know, probity data and everything else is, you know, all the things that have come out. But 
just to finish off your question, then I realized, you know, the company, so we got it all going. And then I put a new operating model in place, which has taken the last two and a half years, nearly three years, to get those disparate into one thing, build a lot more for as a service, build a lot more for public cloud, build a lot more for, you know, security, data management, private, all those sorts of, you know, things that are important, scale. And I always said to, you know, internally, I said, look, I shouldn't be the guy that builds the model and then implements it. You know, what you should do is you should put at least the structure in place, put 80% of it, and then let someone else come in, take the last 20% and make that their finishing product. So, you know, back to the point, we put the model in place. It's been really successful. Fujitsu's doing really well. It's winning major deals. It's, you know, the business is going well. We just got to notify this week of another brand new piece of work that's in, you know, it will be hundreds of millions of dollars when it all gets put in place. And back to that 10-year point, then, okay, I'll go find something else to do. Yeah, fantastic. Well, it sounds exciting. I mean, given your trajectory, who knows where you're going in the next five, 10 years? Yeah, I'd be excited to do, redo this podcast. So my next question, Mike, just around, or themed around success. And I always sort of enjoyed asking you, you know, how was the morning or how was the afternoon? Because I'd get an answer and there'd usually be some sort of physical it might be our idea the 7K run that you'd managed to sneak into the middle of the day or something. But what habits or habits do you think have served you, you know, best during your career? Well, there's a couple of things, and you know, maybe another podcast for another day, you should, you know, I should give you my 10 perspectives of leadership, and I'll give you two of them. And the first is the most important. The first is the most valuable commodity you have is time. And so back to the point about, you know, being a young person coming through and wanting to take on a leadership role or a management role and or both. And everyone says, oh, you know, I've got to be better at the law. I've got to be better at understanding, you know, my product or understand the market, whatever. I go, understand your time because that's finite. And if you don't distribute that the right way, you don't use it the right way, then you're not going to be as effective as what you can be. So, and that flows into another one, which I won't talk about is, which is learning to work through others, but that's a whole different discussion. But back to the point about time. So the one thing that I've always been, and, and as I've got you know, older and grumpier and you know, a bit more chiseled, I have been more and more focused on my time. So I don't allow anyone to put a meeting in my diary unless they discuss it with me. Now, by the way, not all the time I can control it because you know, in Fujitsu I have you know, the president or Japan or a shareholder or whatever or a customer. So, but then when that happens, you know, somebody who looks after my diary rings me and says, this is, you know, this meeting's just come up with David. You know, do you want to do it? If you want to do it, what gives? And we discuss it. Rather than having someone go, oh, well, I've made, you know, priority A, priority B and B, C. But the trouble is I'm looking at it going, oh, I've got so much time. So where do I want to put it? So back to your point, you know, and, and I like, you know, riding my bike and running and, and all that physical sort of stuff, but I plan for it. So, and it doesn't mean you do it religiously, but... What I find is people go, why do you ride your bike? And I go, two things. One, I enjoy it. And two, while I'm doing it, I don't think about work. And no offence, you know, I play golf very badly, but I have been known, you know, to be standing over a putt and I'm thinking about, I didn't return that phone call. So I like the physical exertion because I'm thinking so much about the physical exertion. I'm not worried about, did I return that phone call? So time's really, really important. And the second thing just around, you know, leadership and everything else, and once again, they don't teach you this in business school, but you'll learn along the way, is you've got to learn to say no. 
and very quickly on that, you only have, you know, back to finite time, you have finite, everything's finite, resources, money, time, you know, people, everything. So if you walk into me, and, and once again, I learned this when I was a young manager, someone comes into my office and they say, Mike, can I have $100 to invest in the business? And, you know, you walk in, David, and they go, oh, David's a nice young guy. You know, I don't want to upset him. So I'll say probably one of the most dangerous words in business. I'll say, let me think about it. And you go, oh. So you walk out of the office and you go downstairs back to the coffee shop or to your workplace or wherever you are. And a colleague goes, so how'd you go asking Mike for the $100, David, for your project? And he goes, he's, he said, let me think about it. But he thinks, you know, he's going to say yes. Because let me think about it. Because you take the positive out of it. And I'm sitting, you know, I'm sitting back there and, you know, somebody sees you leave, you know, my office or my, you know, the meeting room, whatever it is. And they go, what happened? I go, well, David just came in and asked me for $100. And I didn't want to say no. So I said, let me think about it. But I'm going to say no. Straight away, you have indecision in your business. And so, you know, and the other word that's dangerous is maybe. Can I have $100? Maybe. Because once again, you'll read the positive and I'm going to say, you know, the negative. So you're better off to say no. And you walk in and go, Mike, can I have $100? I go, well, I'd like to give you $100, David, but I can't because I don't have 100 or I've just given 100 away or, gee, your business case isn't strong enough and someone else's business case is. So if you say no, but put clarity why you'll say no. Or if you do this, David, I will give you $100. Because if you don't, and once again, it gets back to in our society, we are conditioned from being young children to say yes, Right. So when you come into management, everything that you've been conditioned is screaming at you when you walk in the room and go, I've been taught to say yes, I want to say yes to David. So we say these words like maybe or let me think about it. So back to the point, your time's really important and give people clarity. You know, be professional with them, but, you know, be civil with them. But if you say no, so once again, you walk out and you go, well, he said no, but he said because I didn't have a good enough return on investment or whatever. So if I improve that, I know I'll get the 100. So you go, well, if you do this, I'll give you the 100. Or there's no chance whatsoever because I don't have 100, whatever it is, but give clarity. Yeah, amazing. And I, I saw this sort of, as you're talking through your career progression, I saw this sort of theme around getting in positions where you can make these decisions. And now you're talking about the sort of these, what did you call them? The 10 perspectives. So these two perspectives are about protecting the time and the second part around saying no is so another form of making a decision and also protecting your time. I can see all the, the linkages coming together. My brain's firing off. Motor neurons everywhere. This is all sort of, you know, this didn't happen to me when I, you know, I was 25 or 28. It's only now and, you know, with a, well, I can look back and I can think about it. I mean, I mean, once again, just talking about leadership, there's two things that are really important to me around it. One is... I was never a leader. I was never a milk monitor. I was never a class captain, school captain, footy club captain, cricket club captain, you know, nothing. School prefect. Now, I was always popular and I was always in the mix, but I was never selected. And back to the point, you know, you look at somebody and it's the old thing about do you make your best player the coach, you know, and sometimes you don't or a lot of the times you don't. So, and when I came into the business world, and I can remember sitting in a particular meeting and they were talking about something and I could see the answer as clear as day. And I'm looking at all these people around me and I'm literally a young graduate three months into the job and I'm going, why don't they just do X? You know, coming back, it took me a while to realise that you don't necessarily have to be sitting in the room for 25 years to be able to give a good perspective. And, and then what that, after that, it just takes confidence and that takes a little while to get, yeah. 
Well, the next question is about sort of strategy broadly, which you've kind of jumped into a little bit as well. But I mean, how have you consistently stayed ahead of the curve? I'm a big learner. I really enjoy learning things. So, you know, it doesn't mean I always master them. But, you know, for example, one of the things I always learned was, so going to work for a Japanese company, and people go, do you know Fujitsu, which you do? But what I did was I took time to learn about Japan and including language. So I, for you know, a number of years, I learned Japanese, which is a whole different thing when you don't tell the Japanese you're learning it and you can actually understand what they're saying when they speak Japanese. That's an interesting fly on the wall moment. But so, and I'm always been, you know, back to the point about, I gave you the example of the cloud. Sometimes I'm probably too far ahead of the curve. And, and I won't say that I'm not great, any great visionary, but I like to read. I like to look at different perspectives on things and people's opinions. And then, you know, I can see, you know, what I think is going to happen, but just sometimes, you know, maybe a little bit like, you know, the Elon Musk where he goes, well, we're all going to fly to Mars one day. And I'm like, right, I'm up for that. Let's go set up, a, you know, an airline or a spaceship company goes to Mars. It mightn't quite be ready yet. So sometimes I've been, a, I can see it, but I might be just a little bit too early with the preparation. So it's getting that balance between the commercial practical or commercial return and, you know, where the market is. And that's come from, like I said, put yourself in different positions, take on challenges that aren't necessarily, you know, you may not have the experience to do it. I mean, that's been a big one looking back. I've taken on some things that at the time I go, geez, I must have been brave that day. I said yes. But looking back, it kicked me on, gave me a really good experience that I could draw on later on. Yeah, fantastic. It sounds like growth is a huge part of that, whether it's structured learning or throwing yourself into something so you can grow into it. Fantastic. And the next question is around enablement. You touched on it before with one of your of your 10 sort of perspectives around time and then leveraging it, leveraging your time, which you said you might get to another podcast. But how have you embraced technology and other forms of leverage? I'm trying to work out whether I'm a Luddite that likes technology or whether I'm a frustrated technologist that just isn't very good personally, technically. But, you know, if you look at, say, look at history, you can see there is always, you know, whatever they want to say, you know, some sort of paradigm shift, whatever the current word is, that just changes things, right? And we're going through one at the moment with COVID-19 isn't the shift. COVID-19 is, you know, creating the environment that's causing the shift. But, you know, too many times companies have been the Pony Express company saying, don't worry about this railroad thing, it's a fad. Right, or don't worry about this aeroplane thing. I mean, transport's a great way of seeing, you know, these massive shifts. So one of the things you've got to understand too, and once again, if you look back in, in, over history, is nothing's the same forever. And as humans, we like consistency. Yeah, you know, we all talk about it, but people don't like change. That's one thing I've learned in business. So to get people to change, you've got to do two things. You've got to, you know, get the culture right so it cultivates, you know, the ability to people you know, to implement change. And back to my point about the operating model, I said it took two and a half years. You can't spin, you know, a big company on a dime. And there are times when you do it, and if you, you know, coming to a current example, you look at COVID and what it's doing now. I mean, we're having this virtual, you know, a year ago, we'd be sitting in a room face to face. Now, you know, it looks like you're at home or, or whatever. And so the technology is allowed a shift to move very quickly. And, and you know, we all know the stories about how companies within two or three months back in March, moved whole workforces offline. But then changing the workforce of the future and using technology. So technology enabled the change, but it won't hold the change. It won't sustain the change. 
because there's, there's other factors you need to consider when you're running a business or you're involved in a business more than the technology. So doing some sort of, you know, virtual conference is fantastic, but as humans and, and you know, back to before, you know, I'm, I think I've spent a lot of time thinking and observing things. As humans, we do a lot of our learning by observation. So, and you think back yourself, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're at school, doesn't matter whether you're doing sport, doesn't matter whether you're learning a musical instrument, you do it by learning from observing somebody who is better than you or has the experience to do it. And then you practice and you pick it up. So the virtual world and the way we're working at the moment, which is predominantly being brought around because of health and safety, will have to go through a couple of iterations before it's sustainable and giving us the productivity and you know the ability for people to take on learning. I mean, I'll just digress for a second. You know, one of the things we just did at Fujitsu, you know, one of the big programs I've been really hot on is graduates, right? We've had graduates for many years and we just bought on in, well, they were supposed to start in February and we pushed them back to July. And I'll say this honestly, I think it's the biggest challenge for a young graduate who has just spent the bulk of their uni probably doing online things. And they've been sitting at the kitchen table at home or in their study or in their bedroom doing online. And now all of a sudden they're working for a company like us and they're still sitting in the same location doing something through a screen. That isn't a long-term way of developing your workforce of tomorrow. So the technology is an enablement thing, but it's, you've got to do other things, what I'm saying, to make the change more sustainable and, and to really evolve you know, the business and everything else. And just on that, Mike, so what are some of the lasting changes you see in your operating model in um, Fujitsu as a result of, you know, 2020? Well, I think the two big things, and one of them is, is really apparent, is people talk about virtual, but let's go back to, you know, it's agile, the agility of the workplace, right? And that doesn't matter also. You don't have to be someone, you know, predominantly like myself who's been in a, an office-based job for, you know, the year. Um, but it also will happen, you know, in field forces as well. So the building industry or the transportation industry. So the virtual aspect of it is really important. The second aspect is getting right the blend of work-life balance. And now it's genuine, you know, like, and once again, you know, coming back to the exercise thing, you know, there's a little app that anyone who runs or rides called Strava that, you know, registers your runs and rides. And, you know, it's a social thing. I make a point of going, you know, the last couple of months, I've made a point of going for my ride at lunchtime and then putting it on Strava so people could see that, you know, I might be on a call at 7 o'clock in the morning and I still might be on a call at 8 o'clock at night, but I've taken some time out in the day to go and spend an hour or two to do my thing, to send a message to say, hey, this isn't like it was. So, you know, I think that's going to be a, you know, a really... And then the second part about that, and it's going to be a big change is how you manage people. And I don't think we've quite worked that out yet because we still have a hierarchical way of managing, you know, and doing, you know, reviews and meetings and that sort of thing. And I think that's going to be very, very different. So the way that you manage and measure effectiveness and productivity in your workforce is going to undergo a profound change. Yeah. And that was one of the topics out of the last mastermind group around, you know, how do you align that in this new environment, which is, um, yeah, obviously quite a complex and multifaceted uh, conversation. Okay, Michael, we're going to call it time there and really appreciate you coming on the show and talking with the guests 
sorry, you are the guest talking with the listeners. So really appreciate you taking the time out and would like to sort of wish you all the best in your, your next endeavor beyond Jiu-Jitsu and look forward to sort of hearing of your continued success. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. And uh, hopefully everyone got something out of it. Thank you for joining us today at The Mentor List. If you'd like to hear more or speak to us about recommending our next interview guest, come on through to mentorlist.com.au. You can also find out more about our suite of mastermind series taking shape in your area, your industry, and your discipline. We look forward to welcoming you to one of our events very soon. Stay tuned for another great show. for listening to The Mentor List. If you like what you're hearing on The Mentor List, the best way to support the show is to just take a few seconds to leave a rating and or comment over on iTunes. You can also find further information about this show and links to further episodes at mentorlist.com.au. Until next time, this is The Mentor List.